You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on this 29th day of October 2012. Welcome to episode 249 of the Corbett Report podcast, How to Manufacture or Suppress Outrage. It should only take a moment's contemplation, even for the most incredulous of listeners in the audience, to satisfy themselves that there are numerous examples supporting the proposition that the 24-7 news cycle is completely dominated by issues, topics, and stories of no significance whatsoever. These stories arrive on the scene, monopolize the news networks to the point of utter tedium, and disappear just as quickly, leaving little more in their wake than a few catchphrases or fleeting pop-cultural references. Justice for Trayvon, Sandra Fluke, Stop Coney 2012, all of these stories just appearing within the last year are almost completely forgotten today, but at the time garnered and provoked incessant round-the-clock news coverage and endless pontification by the talking heads of the controlled, bought-and-paid-for corporate media. In that context, the coverage of the Coney 2012 phenomenon on the March 7th, 2012 edition of New World Next Week serves as a reminder of the danger of the news cycle being driven by PR agencies, celebrity tweets, and a misinformed, easily misled public. We will begin with a story from the National Post, but like probably millions of other people out there, I first heard about it this very morning on FaceSpace and Jitter and all the social network holes. Joseph Coney viral video campaign clouded in controversy. A documentary film aimed at exposing the heinous acts of Ugandan war criminal Joseph Coney, and that's K-O-N-Y, exploded over the internet Wednesday drawing praise and condemnation from the millions who viewed it. The half-hour film, Coney 2012, made by the U.S. organization Invisible Children, tells the story of a child soldier named Jacob and the charity's push to have the U.S. intervene to stop the LRA. That would be the Lord's Resistance Army. The campaign is kicked off just as the LRA, a cultish militia led by Coney that has terrorized parts of Africa for decades, launched a new spate of attacks in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Millions of Twitter users use the hashtag StopConey, vying for the top trending spot among other popular topics today like the iPad 3 and football players like Peyton Manning. Dear Joseph Coney, I'm going to help make you famous hip-hop icon P. Diddy, and there were other folks, Bieber and Rihanna and all your favorites in the Papa culture kingdom, spreading the word, hopping on the bandwagon as, as so many folks do. But continuing... The film's narrator, Jason Russell, explains how U.S. advisors to Uganda could train government forces in the technology needed to hunt down Mr. Coney in the jungle. Last October, U.S. President Barack Obama agreed to send 100 troops. But the campaign has been met with suspicion and condemnation with some critics denouncing the push to hunt down Coney as irresponsible and immoral. Quote, the immediate question is whether Coney is captured or killed, end quote, wrote Ph.D. student Jack McDonald from King's College, London, that while he supports the desire to raise the profile, as so many folks do and would, 
of the heinous nature of Coney's crimes, considering this whole kind of viral marketing campaign dangerous, the idea that popular opinion can be leveraged with viral marketing to induce foreign military intervention is really, really dangerous. It is immoral to try and sell a sanitized version of foreign intervention that neglects the fact that people will die as a result. That goes for politicians as much as Jason Russell. Invisible children did not respond to a request for comment, as, of course, they are no doubt deluged with all of this going on. James, before I throw it back to you, this this really kind of struck on something I've kind of seen woven throughout many of the other stories playing out on the on the geopolitical stage right now. And for me, it kind of seems to be part and parcel with the the finalization of turning the well-meaning progressive democratic left, the complete capitulation and and just turning into calling for the bloodlust. Yay, we killed Osama. You know, yay, Andrew Breitbart's dead, which, by the way, I'm waiting for the videos he was going to put out. And, you know, yay, we're sending threatening messages to Limbaugh and and all of these things. We love it when our cool blue singing president brings on the, the terror, just like the other cool saxophone player that, you know, burnt, burnt down that evil church in the 90s. But Kucinich also lost his seat yesterday in Ohio, which I see as another kind of signpost that ultimately people are selling their souls over to this new world order. James? Well, that's exactly the point, isn't it? That's exactly right, because it's always endlessly fascinating to me to watch how literally millions upon millions of people who probably don't, couldn't, can't even place Uganda on a map uh, and who had never heard of, of this guy, Kony, before last, you know, last literally one week ago, had never even heard of this, now find this to be, you know, this is the pressing political issue. And millions upon millions of people can be led into this by, you know, the tweets of P. Diddy and Kim Kardashian and people like this into, into thinking this is a pressing political issue right now, although this is something that's been going on for, you know, 20 years and it, it involves all this backstory and everything. And, uh, and never think to question why this is being put in front of them right now and whether this actually serves the interests of the, uh, the, the foreign interventionists and the military-industrial complex and all of these people, the war profiteers and the people who want a justification for increasing American and Western intervention in Africa and the, uh, the further establishment of AFRICOM and all of these, these grand political ideas that this plays into. And of course, they can deflect any criticism of that by saying, oh, well, if, if you're not for for getting Coney, then you're you're for child torture and kidnap, uh, and just simplistic arguments like that. Oh, if you're not for the police looking at all of your ISP activity, you're for the child pornographers. It's it's the moral equivalent of that type of argument. So um so it's 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 fascinating to watch this and how this becomes the celeb flavor of the week, like uh, like the Darfur genocide uh, campaign a few years ago, and now that South Sudan has been created and there's the Western toehold in in that area, so that they can get their hands on the oil, suddenly no one cares about Darfur anymore. And I guarantee you in a few years, no one will care about Kony anymore or the fact that he hasn't even been in Uganda for the last six years. But let's not complicate people with the actual facts of the situation, what's actually going on. Let's just try to simplify it all into this tiny little, you know, Kony 2012 catchphrase that can be tweeted out without any substance, without anyone knowing what's going on, but will provide the justification for what's going to be the next stage of intervention. And when they can't get Kony, oh, well, we'll have to send 
send in the drones, we'll have to send in the SEALs, we'll have to increase American presence in the region. And it's just, uh, it's just all part of this, this cycle, this spin cycle that, uh, that just justifies more and more intervention. And exactly as you indicate, the left can get on board. Yay, this is bombing people that we can get behind. Yay, go Team America. And James, I, I think ultimately just to wrap all this up, it's, it's so much effort spent on something that, again, I'm not saying is not important, but ultimately, what about all the dead kids and the bastards in your own neighborhoods, in your town where you live? That's all I would say. Or anywhere else in the world. Why don't we get upset about dictators that we're not being told by P. Diddy and the like to be, to be angry at? I mean, why, why is it always we have to follow whatever these people are tweeting out as their flavor of the week? Well, in some ways, perhaps the Coney 2012 phenomenon in particular provides a very good example of the very phenomenon that we're examining today on the podcast, because the Coney 2012 viral video that sparked this intense fervor over Joseph Coney and the need to catch him, despite the fact that he hasn't even been seen in the last six years, is a very interesting case study, isn't it, in how just a, a media phenomenon, a viral video that then gets covered and perpetuated and amplified in the mainstream corporate media can give rise to a very real political movement, which thankfully in the case of Coney 2012 fizzled out before it had the chance to do too much damage and before it actually led to millions of people outright calling for U.S. military intervention in Africa and the expansion of AFRICOM. But it is, as I say, an interesting example of exactly that type of phenomenon that we're studying today, that is how millions of well-meaning and perhaps very fervent would-be political activists of one sort or another, perhaps the, uh, the easily misled high school kind who believe that clicking like on Facebook is going to cause a, a political turmoil or a, upheaval in some manner, but still people who genuinely do want to see some sort of change in the world can be so easily misled by a single viral video into supporting an agenda against someone that whose existence they literally did not know of the week before. That is an incredible and remarkable power, and I think we would be naive to think that that is not being used to the utmost by the PR agencies that are fronting for the defense contractors and the other interested parties who very much do have vested interests and sometimes quite open interests in perpetuating, for example, American military influence and intervention abroad just to say one of the possible ways in which this phenomenon can be used. So let's study it in some other examples and other contexts in which, in, in certain cases where it was perhaps much more effective than simply the Coney 2012 phenomenon, which of course fizzled out quite quickly in the wake of the mental breakdown of the purveyors of that video and the revelation of the ties of the makers of that video to the U.S. State Department and the fact that Coney hadn't been in Uganda for six years, etc., etc. That movement did fizzle out quite Quite quickly, and the Coney Boogeyman is still trotted out a little bit. For example, Clinton brought it up in her trip to uh, Africa recently as one of the reasons why Uganda should be clamoring for more American drones to help uh, in their search for the Coney Boogeyman. But for the most part, the political momentum has faded. However, one large-scale psyop of this kind, which succeeded quite brilliantly for the 
people who are manipulating this this foreign policy abroad was the entire meme, the idea, the the myth, really, of the Arab Spring and the Twitter revolution and all of these concepts that swirled around, especially last year, and especially concentrated on places like Egypt, to the point where we are all familiar by now with what happened in the run-up to the ousting of Mubarak and the immediate wake of the ousting of Mubarak, although it is, of course, interesting, as we pointed out in previous episodes of this podcast, how once the overthrow of Mubarak was achieved, the spotlight turned completely away from Egypt, and now most Americans, once again, don't care anything at all about what is happening in Egypt. But for a brief window of, uh, of time, there were people in America large sections of the public who seemed to have an opinion on what was happening in Egypt and seemed to care for the first time, presumably in decades, about who was leading the Egyptian government. Demonstrators in Tampa said I make a lot of noise about the civil unrest in Egypt. It's just one of the many demonstrations from San Francisco to New York today. Fox 13's Jeremy Campbell explains why a local group felt it was important to speak out. They carried signs and waved flags. For freedom! Showing symbols of peace. In the midst of the afternoon traffic rush on Del Mabry Highway. Wanting to come out and uh, show our support for the democratic uprising in Egypt. One, two, three, four! It may stand a world away, but the unrest in Egypt led the Bay Area Middle Eastern community to act locally. Because you're never too far from Egypt. Egypt is in your heart no matter where you go. We want them to have democracy, and we hope that our government will do everything that they can to support the people of Egypt and, and their demands for democracy. Some Americans don't understand what led to the dramatic images beamed out of Egypt this week. I don't. I have no clue right now. I see it on TV, but I'm really not sure. This is about educating our fellow Americans. They chose to gather at one of the busiest intersections in Tampa. You can probably hear the cars honking. That's exactly what they want. To be in a busy intersection where we can get people's attention. Perhaps they'll see something here, they'll go back and Google it, maybe they'll look on a Facebook page, maybe they'll dig into this further and they'll realize how important this issue is. Drivers react differently. Well, a little skeptical um, because it's noisy and, you know, not uh, they're not saying things that sound like peace to me. Well, it just means that we have a lot of people from around the world that live here and are concerned about their family and friends at home. Even the youngest say this protest is more of a quest to bring the democracies they enjoy in America home to Egypt. If what we want for ourselves, we want for other people. We want democracy. Jeremy Campbell, Fox 13 News. The group gathered in two locations right across from each other along Kennedy Boulevard and Dale Mabry. About 100 people attended today's rally. Now, exactly like in the Coney phenomenon, back in the Arab Spring, we saw lots of people all across the United States and around the globe, again, excited and energized by this spontaneous flowering of democracy that was happening in Egypt to overthrow the tyrants that had so long oppressed the people. And that was the straightforward narrative that was presented. It accomplished its task by overthrowing Mubarak. And as I say, the 24-7 news spotlight turned to the next flavor of the week, and people could once again turn their attention to whoever they were being told to turn their 
their attention to and take their attention away from what was happening in Egypt. And that is genuinely and generally how this phenomenon functions. The 24-7 news cycle amplifies and casts a spotlight and a magnifying glass on certain areas of the globe when it is in the interest of certain foreign policy movers and shakers for the public to have some sort of investment in what's happening in a given area. Once that interest and attention is no longer needed for any pieces of that puzzle to be uh, to be moved or put into place, then the attention can safely turn somewhere else. And sometimes it is a political distraction issue rather than an issue of significance. But in the case of Arab Spring, I think there were very concerted efforts to get people to concentrate on certain aspects of what was happening in that area and that region, but to completely turn their attention away from the other problematic aspects of the so-called Arab Spring to the extent that all of those protests and things that which we were being asked to turn our attention to last year were connected and were ideologically and 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 as in terms of a movement were actually one and the same to the extent that that is uh, is not a myth in and of itself it is interesting how various pieces of that puzzle have been very much excluded and not brought to our attention. Case in point of this entire phenomenon is that, of course, we can all remember the Tunisian Arab Spring, for example, or, of course, the Egyptian Arab Spring. But how of us, how many of us remember such things as the Saudi Arabian Arab Spring? Did any of us really know, or if any of us who were solely counting on the corporate media for our news and information know that such a phenomenon was occurring to a certain extent last year? Probably not. But in order to find out more about this, why don't we turn to whowhatwhy.com, the website of investigative journalist Russ Baker, who had a very engaging report from the 7th of December 2011, the Saudi Arab Spring Nobody Noticed. And in this report, Russ Baker notes, quote, Hear the one about the Arab Spring in Saudi Arabia that nobody noticed? No, this is not a joke. It is a real situation, and a cautionary example of what happens when Western governments and their media are more favorable to some revolutions than others. Here's the background. On November 21st, Government troops opened fire on demonstrators in Saudi Arabia's eastern province, killing at least four and injuring more. Given the general paucity of demonstrations in a country where dissent is dealt with fiercely, the unrest and violence seemed a highly newsworthy development. The next day, the Middle East-based Al Jazeera English, the best Western source of news from the region, punted. Instead of getting... Instead of getting direct eyewitness accounts that might anger the Saudi leadership close allies of the emir of Qatar, who owns Al Jazeera, the network used an old trick. It quoted a Western news agency, the French outfit Agence France Presse, which merely reported the Saudi government's version of events. Two days after Al Jazeera, the Associated Press had its own report, also based on the Saudi spokesman. The article did note a series of clashes between police and protesters in this country's Shiite-dominated eastern region, starting in the spring. It noted, The Interior Ministry previously blamed what it describes as seditious residents, saying they attacked security forces with guns and firebombs with the backing of a foreign enemy, an apparent reference to Shiite power Iran. The ministry statement Thursday said the deaths in the new unrest were the result of exchanges of fire since Monday with unknown criminals, who it said fired on security checkpoints and vehicles from houses and alleyways. The purported context comes in the final paragraph. 
There is a long history of discord between the kingdom's Sunni rulers and the Shiite minority concentrated in the east, Saudi Arabia's key oil-producing region. Shiites make up 10% of the kingdom's 23 million citizens and complain of discrimination, saying they are barred from key positions in the military and government and are not given a proportionate share of the country's wealth. The salient point in Saudi Arabia, however, is not really ethnic discrimination which exists throughout the world. It is the story of the avarice and brutality through which one extended family dominates a country. In Libya, the uprising was dominated by a distinct tribal opposition, yet it was quickly characterized as representing broad national sentiment with a kind of nobility and inevitability. Not so, up to now, when reporting on the Saudi protests. In truth, dissatisfaction with the Saudi royal family is hardly limited to the Shiites, and the levels of anger are probably as great and perhaps greater than that felt by the average Libyan toward Gaddafi. I'll let you continue reading that article from Russ Baker's whowhatwhy.com website on your own, and it does go into more detail about this story, the background to it, and also how the New York Times and other news outlets have worked to keep the important contextual information of these protests out of the headlines, even as they worked so diligently to keep Egypt and some of the other protests happening in the so-called Arab Spring in the headlines. And it is very much quite apparent and blatant what is happening here. People who are friendly to U.S. interests and are allies of the United States government are not going to be covered in the same way as governments of countries that are not friendly and allied to U.S. interests. And one example of just such a blatant double standard in the reporting on the so-called Arab Spring is the reporting that happened or failed to happen or happened but was not reported as happening in Bahrain. And I will turn to Glenn Greenwald uh, of The Guardian. He used to write for uh, Salon, but he now writes for The Guardian, uh, who did an excellent summary of a very important report that most people did not see uh, when it actually aired. And that's uh, for a very important and very interesting reasons, which we'll get into in this article. The article is headlined, Why Didn't CNN's International Arm Air Its Own Documentary on Bahrain's Arab Spring Repression? A former CNN correspondent defies threats from her former employer to speak out about self-censorship at the network. Quote, In late March 2011, as the Arab Spring was spreading, CNN sent a four-person crew to Bahrain to produce a one-hour documentary on the use of internet technologies and social media by democracy activists in the region. Featuring on-air investigative correspondent Amber Lyon, the CNN team had a very eventful eight-day stay in that small, U.S.-backed kingdom. CNN's total cost for the documentary, ultimately titled iRevolution, Online Warriors of the Arab Spring, was in excess of $100,000, an unusually high amount for a one-hour program of this type. The portion Lyon and her team produced on Bahrain ended up as a 13-minute segment in the documentary. That segment, which as of now is available on YouTube, is a hard-hitting and unflinching piece of reporting that depicts the regime in a very negative light. In the segment, Lyon interviewed activists as they explicitly described their torture at the hands of government forces, while family members recounted their relatives' abrupt disappearances. She spoke with government officials justifying the imprisonment of activists, and the segment featured harrowing video footage of regime forces shooting unarmed demonstrators along with the mass arrests of peaceful protesters, in sum, 
the early 2011 CNN segment on Bahrain presented one of the starkest reports to date of the brutal repression embraced by the U.S.-backed regime. On the 19th of June 2011, at 8 p.m., CNN's domestic outlet in the U.S. aired iRevolution for the first and only time. The program received prestigious journalism awards, including a 2012 gold medal from New York Festival's Best TV and Films. Despite these accolades, and despite the dangers their own journalists and their sources endured to produce it, CNN International, CNNI, never broadcast the documentary. Even in the face of numerous inquiries and complaints from their own employees inside CNN, it continued to refuse to broadcast the program or even provide any explanation for the decision. To date, this documentary has never aired on CNNI. End quote. Once again, I would exhort you to go to that original Glenn Greenwald article to find out more about that story and about specifically what happened after the uh, CNN came to this decision not to air uh, the, the documentary on their CNN International uh, division and never to re-air on the domestic network. And there is an interesting, fascinating story to do with that and with the reporter behind the story, Amber Lyon, which we will get into in a moment. But as is mentioned in that article, for the time being, this documentary report on Bahrain, the 13-minute segment for the, C- the uh, I report uh, that was produced for CNN is available on YouTube. So I will put in, of course, the link to the uh, the clip in the show notes so that you can go there for yourself. But right now, let's put it into the record. This is the report that was only shown once and one time only on CNN's domestic channel and was explicitly forbidden from ever being shown on CNN International. Flying to the kingdom of Bahrain, our plane was largely empty. We definitely know you're heading into an area of unrest when you are one of the only people on the plane uh, headed to that country. Days after the Egyptian revolution toppled President Hosni Mubarak, Bahraini citizens took to their streets to demand reform. Bahrain has been ruled by the Al Khalifa family, which is Sunni, for over two centuries. The largely Shia population has long complained of discrimination. Most of the population attended the protests. The Crown Prince went on TV calling for dialogue. When unarmed protesters were killed by the Bahraini police, the hopes for reforms dimmed. Dozens of tanks were brought in from Saudi Arabia to quash the rebellion. When we arrived, the streets were silent. We've come across a lot of military checkpoints just driving around here, and you see the guys standing there with their guns, and they're all wearing masks covering their face. Even more disturbing, many of the people we came to Bahrain to see had been arrested or gone into hiding. Hello, uh, this is Ali Abdelimam. 
I'm the creator and founder of Bahrain Online. Ali Abdulamam's website, Bahrain Online, was a virtual coffee shop where Bahrainis could openly discuss politics and the events of the day until it was censored. Just days before we got here, Ali, the father of three young children, disappeared. He's a very loving person, respected person in society. Nabil Rajab is a close friend of Ali Abdulamam. What is Bahrain Online? Why is it so feared by the government? Bahrain Online is the oldest uh, chatting forum that we have, and all the opposition, which is mostly Shia, are active there. And that is disturbing the government because it is the busiest website we have in Bahrain. I just want to be uh, free in my thought, free in my speech. For years, Ali ran the popular website secretly. Everybody thought it is an engine where many people controlling it. It's only one guy. For many years, nobody knows who is the guy behind it. Unfortunately, he paid a lot of price for this activism. He lost his job. Ali was an engineer for Gulf Air, the government-owned airline. In September 2010, he was arrested for spreading, quote, false information. And I told him just to wait for me. Uh, half an hour, I'll call you back and I'll get a lawyer to go with you. I called him half an hour, he did not reply. From that moment, he disappeared. The message went out across the blogosphere. Free Ali Abdulamam. When the protesters took to the streets on February 14th, this was one of their demands. And the royal family listened. The moment he get out of the prison, he joined the protest again. It didn't deter him? No, it did not. I mean, I was surprised. Those uh, people who came out, they were tortured very badly. And all of them, you could see the mark of torture in their bodies six months later. Uh, this revelation is coming from the internet. Ali spoke about the torture to Al Jazeera. The failure, which is the hardest thing, they put something under your leg and then they, they just tied your legs. Then they put handcuff in your hand, and your hand should be like here. Then they put you like this, and my face should be like this, and they hit you in your feet, feet and legs. We asked Bahrain's foreign minister about Ali. We had planned to interview him, and we saw online that he had gone missing, and security forces had raided his home overnight a couple weeks ago. Why were security forces I'm not trying sure. to arrest Ali Abdulamam? I'm not sure whether he's one of the arrested or not, but if he was arrested, there must be something against him because this is not the first time he got arrested. Hundreds of people have been arrested in Bahrain, many of them professionals, lawyers, teachers, journalists. Five of them died in police custody. Their bodies showed signs of brutal torture. On May 5th, the government charged Ali and 20 others with organizing, quote, a terrorist group, attempting to, quote, overthrow the government by force. But they've provided no evidence. Nabil Rajab is also the president of the Bahrain Center for Human Rights, which has been using social media to document abuses. He says all human rights defenders our targets. My house was raided a few nights ago. What happened when, when the police came and raided your house? 
It's not police. It's uh, around 25 masked men uh, entered my house. He just took me to the bedroom, handcuffed me in front of my daughter, and started searching the house. And, and what did you do when your dad was taken away? What did you do online? Facebook. You went right to Facebook and told everyone that your dad had been taken away? Yeah. We should go inside because they're obviously looking at this house. When we return, our own run-in with Bahrain's masked men. seem to have disappeared from Bahrain's capital thanks to the intense military crackdown. We ventured into another side of Bahrain, a side the government didn't want the world to see, to find out where they've gone. We drove to the Shia villages, passing military checkpoints as we left the capital. So we're gonna hang out with these protesters for a little bit. This is what the protests look like today. Young boys who've been hit with tear gas. We smelled it ourselves. My eyes are burning. It feels like I shot a lemon into my eyes. And uh, you can feel it in your throat right now. Um, it's hard to breathe. We're just a short drive from the naval base of the United States Fifth Fleet. Human rights advocate Nabil Rajab is our guide. So this is the tear gas that they've been using? It's uh, three pieces of tear gas comes from here. And the, I are these are them? No, this is another thing, either for the rubber bullet or for the tear gas, a different type of tear gas. The neighborhood looks like a war zone. People spray painted the names of the martyrs on the walls, but then it's been covered up with this white paint by the government. I mean, it's everywhere. We don't want to see killing in our country. Online, advocates like Rajab say security forces have been shooting into neighborhoods with birdshot every day, striking unarmed civilians. They've been documenting the wounds on Facebook. He said already I removed around 40 from my body in the hospital. This is says that the, the police have been using this to shoot them. They're just little pellets they get in the body. Look what something that small can do, you see? where he has them all over. They shoot it from very close distance. That's why it's been killing people. And this one, you can, with one shot, you can hit 20, 30 people at once. Here you can feel where some of the pellets are still in his body. Still in his body because he's too scared to return to the hospital after the military took it over last month. So he got out of the hospital bed and ran away. Yeah, because he was afraid. Doctors and human rights organizations accuse security forces of using hospitals to identify, capture, and torture protesters. Oh my God, what happened to him? Sound bomb. A sound bomb? Yeah. That's what he calls a flashbang grenade. You have people wounded every day and you don't know how to deal with them. You don't know where to take them. Doctors are getting beaten, tortured inside the hospital, nurses getting arrested and beaten people. But Bahrain's foreign minister denies the government is attacking or torturing anyone. 
the police would not walk into a neighborhood and start shooting people. So they're not shooting into the neighborhoods right now? No, no, no. They won't go and attack a neighborhood unless they are looking for someone. The protesters can't compete with the government's weapons, but they still have the internet. Can you raise your hand if you have a Facebook account? One, two, three, four, five, six. Our gun is Facebook. 100%. Uh, everything's happening all, in all country. It's by Facebook. As we traveled through the villages, the skies were often patrolled by helicopters. When we reached Rajab's home, suddenly half a dozen military and police vehicles surrounded us. What are they doing? About 20 men wearing black ski masks, some in civilian clothing, pointed machine guns at us. They forced us to get on the ground at gunpoint. They erased all the video they found. Then we were taken to a police station and interrogated for nearly six hours before being released. Bahrain's foreign minister says our detention is part of the new necessary security in the country. It had to, do, to be done nowadays during this period of restoring law and order in a way that protects everyone, including your team. Is that unusual for, for masked men with, with guns? I mean, there were about 20 of them uh, appro approached us. Well, it's unusual because the whole situation around us in Bahrain is unusual. We have never seen this before in our lifetime. After we are detained, government minders are attached to our team at all times. They do not allow us to film any of the tanks or soldiers. Come on, we have, how can we not shoot this stuff? Our minders tell us there are no protests. Mm -hmm. Can we do the protest? What protest? There's no protest. The minders instead bring us to see the nice things in Bahrain. Enter in through here. They take us to see the mall. So we're, I guess, going to go shopping. Meanwhile, as we are being minded, human rights workers tell us security forces continue to raid homes late at night, taking the opposition away one by one at gunpoint. And Ali Abdullah Mom is still missing. For many of the people we met in Tunisia, Egypt, and Bahrain, it appears the so-called Arab Spring may be losing its bloom. The Tunisian government has once again started to censor political content. And in Egypt, demonstrators are still protesting alleged torture at the hands of the military. In Syria, Yemen, and Libya, government troops have opened fire on protesters, killing thousands. But this online revolution is still shaking the foundations of some of the world's most repressive regimes. Governments may be able to silence individual voices of protest, but they can't put the genie back in the bottle. And they can't stop the I revolution.
Now, just to be clear, that report that was produced for that particular CNN documentary is just one of several reports that Amberline produced for CNN over the course of the last uh, last year uh, about what was happening in Bahrain. And all of those reports are also similarly available on YouTube. So I will put in links to amberlionlive.com, where she has all of these reports linked up from her homepage, the, the homepage of the reporter behind these reports, Amber Lyon. And on first glance and at face value, this once again goes to demonstrate the point of today's episode, that mass hysteria, fervor, and panic, and, and, and absolute total uh, political hysteria can be raised via constant news coverage and and focus in the in the news media and places like Egypt or what's happening with Joseph Kony in Uganda but just as 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 uh, importantly attention can be focused away from areas other areas in which uh, the, the public's attention is not wanted by the powers that be for example in Bahrain and this is not something that we have to speculate on or take only at, uh, at face value or second hand. This is something that we can learn from the inside wranglings of what went on with Amber Lyon and her attempts to get the story of the people of Bahrain told on CNN. And we get this directly from the horse's mouth, as it were. We can de- take this directly from the interviews that Amber Lyon has done about her experiences behind the scenes at CNN. Um, So, Amber, you come back from filming this explosive documentary, An Uprising in Bahrain, and when you ask why it's not airing on CNN International, they say, well, it was never meant to air on CNNI in the first place. I mean, what were you told about before you went? Um, Did you know, at what point did you know that you were being fed lies? Well, at the point that Abby executives, longtime executives at the network started writing me and telling me that I should look into this, that something wasn't right here. So, so I figured with, with their blessing, I should continue on and, and investigate this and figure out what the heck was going on. And um, I asked CNN International's president, Tony Maddox, I met with him twice to ask him why the documentary never aired. He never gave me a response uh, at that point. It wasn't until this really went public that they've been saying, oh, wait, wait, now it was wasn't supposed to air. You know, my, my crew was devastated about this, not only for the people of Bahrain, but also because they had had risked their lives to tell this story. I mean, at one point we were violently detained at machine gun point uh, while filming this, Abby. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you risk so much to tell the truth and get the story out and it's censored. I mean, from the very media establishment that's supposed to be providing people with coverage so they can learn about these things, Amber. Um, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but the Bahraini regime has actually undertaken a massive, very well-funded PR campaign to approve its image in the States. What was the connection yeah. between this PR campaign and CNNI? Well, one of their PR companies, Corvus, that's right down the street from you in, uh, in Washington, D.C., it's a U.S.-based company, they would actually call the CNN uh, desk and, and complain about me and, and tell me that I needed to include statements that pretty much delegitimized the human rights activists that I was using uh, in, in my report. So these PR companies are working for this regime, uh, essentially being the mouthpiece for the U.S. media, trying to use intimidation. And, and Abby, the more I investigated, I, I was actually able to uncover something that that really uh, 
you know, made me feel defrauded as a journalist, not only our sources, we found out that Bahrain is a paying customer at CNN. Uh, instead of watchdogging Bahrain, CNN International is actually taking money from the regime in exchange for producing content that they then air. And, and it's pretty much disguised as news because there's almost no disclosures that this rosy content about pearl diving and how the crown prince is progressive <laughs> is paid for by Bahrain. And Abby, you know, as a journalist, ethically, that violates all journalism 101 ethics. You don't take money from dictators to air content that you're not informing your viewers is being paid for by these regimes. Once again, Amber Lyon can be found at amberlyonlive.com where she is continuing to do independent journalism now on hard-hitting subjects. So I hope that you are following her work and as she continues to develop her own journalism. But uh, it, I, I trust, I hope that the, uh, the broad outline, the point of today's episode has been driven home at this point, that the attention of the news media, of course, in cooperation with governments and PR agencies and corporations behind the scenes through undisclosed contracts and, and, uh, and financial relationships, can, of course, influence public opinion to either concentrate on or to ignore certain key issues that are taking place around the globe, and of course to shape our perceptions of those events. So this is an extremely important power that is in the hands of the financial oligarchs who truly do control this system. And again, we don't have to speculate on this. We can get the, the, the testimony of the people who are, have been on the inside of the system and have come out to tell the tale of what's really going on behind the scenes. And since this is a principle that has been applied many times in the past, and of course, we've only highlighted a couple of examples here today, but I'm sure each and every one of you out there can think of several more that it might be worth your time to pursue in greater depth. But if we can think of these from the past, then surely these exact same processes are going on today, either to distract us from important things that are happening that they don't want us to know about, or to focus our attention on things that they do want us to think about and to shape our perception on those issues. So if it is happening today, in what ways is it happening? Well, again, I will only posit a couple of examples because we could literally be here all day talking about the examples of the ways that this phenomenon functions in our society. But let's take a look at just a couple of examples. So first, let's start with an example of something that we should be focusing on, but that the government is desperate for us not to focus on, which is the encroaching police state in the United States. It's just one example. And this is another subject that Amber Lyon has been reporting on extensively. Um, Anaheim was, I mean, that guy, Manuel Diaz, was shot in broad daylight. So people were obviously upset. And I remember being there and we were in the middle of the road at a march. And I looked over my shoulder and I saw the trucks coming down the street with guys, with police officers dressed in camo. And I had to, I, it's almost like everything just came to a stop. Even the protesters, everyone could not believe what they were seeing, that these uh, officers were dressed like that for unarmed children and women and, and men who were protesting. And, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, I, I, I feel a systematic uh, crushing of dissent or, or protest by, by police um, departments across the country. Was there any danger? Was there any looting or any rioting? What was going on that they would feel the need to bring in yeah. essentially, you know, tanks and military? What, what is that? They were trying to head to Disneyland. 
So the protesters are upset. They feel like it was influenced somehow by Disneyland because they were going to march and they felt that the, you, you see them, you know, they're there on horseback. Oh, I remember I took a shot of that lady too. Um, and so they, they literally made it impossible for the protesters to march. Look, that's, that's what I saw when I was walking down the street uh, shooting photographs and I couldn't believe it. Horses, dudes on horses. Um, yeah, and, and look, they're carrying bokens in their hands. Those are wooden Japanese swords to hit people with. See, see that officer there? Um, not only that, they were uh, firing beanbag rounds and, and tear gas. Um, the horses have balls. eye goggles on. And right there, that's at the intersection. And they wanted to go down that intersection and turn and head to Disneyland to protest because they felt... Soldiers with fucking machine yeah. guns. If you I have another video, look up Tim Pool and Amber Lyon shot at by Anaheim police. Because we were trying to cover this, Joe, and... Um, and the police, we had noticed, kept setting up walls to keep us behind the police officers as we were covering it so we wouldn't be there with the people uh, to see how they were being treated, also to see how they were um, being shot with these non-lethal rounds. And at one point, I was actually fired on um, by the Anaheim Police Department with less lethal rounds, but they, I was clearly standing in a busy street, and they knew, here we are. I can see something, I can see camera across the So we're in a, um, a busy street, and there I am right there. And that guy yells, fucking pigs. And then listen now. And see the U-Haul? Right then I stopped, and I was literally sitting there, and I hid in between two U-Hauls as, as rounds kept going past. He was able, smart enough to be able to scale a wall. But watch, he gets fired on again. By the way, those bullets, they're non-lethal. They can take your eye out easily. Yeah, if they, they hit you in hurt. the eye, you're dead. Not only that, if they hit you in the ribs um, and your, your ribs go into your heart, it can kill you. If it hits you in the neck um, and, and in the head, it can crack your skull. I, I've seen it happen overseas. Jesus Christ. And this is in just a neighborhood of, in Anaheim. People were... were uh, so they fired on you like yeah. you guys, are, like this is a war. Yeah, and I, I was hiding between the two U-Hauls, and, and I was yelling for Tim because I didn't know he had gotten away, and, and I thought he'd been hit, and so I kept yelling for him to see if he was okay, and then, um, and look, he's running now because they're just shooting down the streets. I mean, these poor people living in this neighborhood. Um, Jesus Christ. And... And so at this point, I come out. So and this is just the cops doing this? Yeah, this is the police. So who are we really scared of here, the protesters or the police? Because the protesters weren't shooting at me. Um, and, and, I, and I clearly have blonde hair and a bright green shirt on and, and was shooting photos of a dumpster that had been set on fire. And, I, and finally, when, uh, after a couple minutes, I ran out and I was screaming press and, the, and they quit firing. And one of the officers looked at me and said, I was really worried about you. <laughs> and then and then he also said, don't you know how to cover a riot? And then he pointed back at a photographer who was behind the police line with them, following the police, instead of actually hanging out with the protesters like we're supposed to do as journalists. We're, we're, we're out there to be a watchdog on authority and protect the public. And in other words, that's, that's what I believe they were doing, is trying to keep me from being with the protesters to film their injuries as civilians and bystanders were getting hit by these, these less, less lethal rounds. Um, and and that, that's pretty scary because they're trying to oppress not only these, these voices of dissent, but journalism and journalists. 
Well, once again, you can continue watching that interview that Amberline recently gave on the Joe Rogan podcast, or you can consult other sources on these topics. And of course, we've covered them many, many times in the past. But the NDAA and police brutality and the, the surveillance grid and all of these pieces of a very, very frightening picture add up to something that many, many people are intrinsically concerned about and want to know more about, but they are specifically not being told about it from the usual media sources, because this is one of those topics which it is not in the interests of the financial oligarchy to have in front of the public. And, well, that begs the question, then what is the type of subject that we are being asked to concentrate on? Who is the boogeyman that we are being asked to look towards and to blame all of our potential problems on? Well, again, we don't have to think too hard to come up with an answer to that question. Where should a red line be drawn? A red line should be drawn right here. Before, before Iran completes the second stage of nuclear enrichment necessary to make a bomb, before Iran gets to a point where it's a few months away or a few weeks away from amassing enough enriched uranium to make a nuclear weapon, Seven people have been killed and more than 20 injured in an explosion on a bus carrying Israeli tourists in Bulgaria. It happened at an airport of the Black Sea city of Borgas. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has blamed Iran for the attack. Charges against two people who allegedly attempted to carry out uh, a deadly plot that was directed by factions of the Iranian government to assassinate a foreign ambassador here in the United States. Ayman al-Zawahiri, the new leader of al-Qaeda, is very keen to stamp his imprint on the international jihad uh, and take revenge for the killing of Osama bin Laden uh, by the Americans last year. Uh, and in so doing, he has uh, got very senior personnel in Iran liaising uh, with uh, the Iranians, principally the al-Quds uh, organization, the covert organization used by the Iranians. Uh, and they're going to be seeking, or they are seeking, and getting some funding from the Iranians and also training. Attorneys emerging from federal court in Manhattan claiming victory after making their case that Iran was linked to the 9-11 attacks. A federal judge says he'll issue a default judgment saying the plaintiffs established their claims with sufficient evidence. Iran never responded to the suit filed on behalf of widows like Tara Bain. In so many ways, the propaganda is so transparent that it doesn't even need refutation. But simply exposing the fact that people are being steeped into this indoctrination, this is the boogeyman, fear this, think about this, associate this country or this leader or this person with evil, and then we can just dangle the word evil in front of you and you will be led along towards whatever agenda. These are simple, basic psychological techniques that almost need no elaboration in and of themselves. They just need to be placed in the proper context so people can understand what is happening to them. And I do have faith that the vast majority of people out there, except for the most, uh, the people the most invested in the system, or the people who are just so far gone that they have 
absolutely no understanding of how the outside world impacts their own lives will be able to understand and will be able to cotton on to what is happening when it is placed in front of them. And when that is done and people still refuse to actually question the reality that they're being fed on the network media, etc., then the problem is theirs and the ball is in their court. There's not much more that we can do about it. But we have to continue hammering this point home as much as we can and as hard as we can to as many people as we can because there are still, believe it or not, there are still people out there in the Matrix who can be rescued from this and who can see through the psychological trickery that is really no more complicated than the types of tricks that one might employ to fool an elementary school student or something. But it's still, it's so basic and it's so obvious, but it still has to be explained and we still have to put it before the people that they are being ensconced in this media matrix. And all of us are prey to this to a certain extent or another. Even the people who can see through the blatant propaganda still can become caught up in constantly refuting this or that piece of the propaganda puzzle instead of constructing an alternative to what is happening that might actually make a difference. And of course, that is always the question of what can be done, what should be done to combat this agenda overall. And on that note, I would like to direct people to an excellent new report on landdestroyer.blogspot.com. In fact, two reports, which I think go some way towards providing that answer that we are looking for towards these questions of what can be done. One of them is called Countering the Corporate Insurgency, which is an excellent examination of the U.S. government's own counterinsurgency guide and its own field manuals on counterinsurgency and how they shed light into the corporate insurgency, which is increasingly taking control of our lives in most of the so-called Western democracies, but also how the counterinsurgencies can work against those corporate insurgencies and can actually unroot them from power. There's another excellent report called Self-Sufficiency, a Local Solution to a Global Problem, which again, I think, concentrates on the important point that uh, political action as it is organized in in big marches on Washington, etc., is almost always in its most fundamental underlying respects supportive of the system that it supposedly threatens. And I will let you read that report for yourself to understand how that system functions and how almost every type of protest activity that we can think of still ends up supporting the big Fortune 500 companies that sit on the corporate boards of the Council on Foreign Relations and the other bodies that are working together to create this media matrix, which again, we are trying to combat. So again, there are solutions to these problems, but one thing that I wanted to do in today's episode, and I hope I have been able to accomplish, is simply to highlight the basic principles upon which this all works. Namely, that we we can be have this outrage manufactured in our society by constantly having certain issues dangled in front of us and being told to hate and despise certain boogeymen. And we can also similarly have real, genuine outrage suppressed by simply ignoring certain problems or sweeping them under the rug or systematically working to suppress reports from ever going to air on some of these key matters. Again, it's not a complicated phenomenon and there are many, many, many other examples that everyone out there can think of, but this is just a uh, my attempt at putting together the basic building blocks and pieces of this puzzle so that hopefully a few more of the people out there in the Matrix who haven't yet understood this point can at last see through the matrix and see that they are being manipulated. 
So that's it for today's episode of the Corbett Report. I just want to make mention uh, especially to thank those people who tuned into the most recent New World next week and heard my call to get uh, Project Censored on the Corbett Report for an interview about Project Censored 2013. In fact, they have already responded thanks to your emails and your support. So we are working behind the scenes to set up a date for that interview. And on the note of today's episode, if you would also like to help, for example, in getting the word out about Amber Lyons' important reporting, if you want to see Amber Lyon on the Corbett Report. Similarly, I've extended an invitation to her. She has not returned my email, so if you would like to see her on the Corbett Report, please send her a, a contact through her website, amberlyonlive.com. And it's the uh, the simple things that you can do that help support this work and what I'm doing. On that note, I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you so much for joining me for today's episode of the Corbett Report and asking you to join me again next week. And terror threat level alerts Till you were ready to fight But it's all a lie Made up nonsense for you to buy